I'm going to uh, today, this is the season finale of this so- cross and the sword, uh, uh, cross and the sword message that was supposed to be one message that turned into two, that turned into three, and now it's four. But I, I don't recall ever having as much passion, such a, a, a firm uh, conviction of the necessity of a message as I have this whole series. And the longer I've gone into this, the, the more convinced I've been of that. I, I want to read two passages that we'll discuss a little bit later on. The first is from 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul's dealing with a, a, a moral issue in the church. And, and he says this, 1 Corinthians 5. What have I to do? This is the Apostle Paul under inspiration saying, What do I have to do with those who are outside? Namely, outside the church. God will judge those outside the church. His concern was to grow people in the church. The people outside the church, he says, I don't judge them. Uh, That's God's business. Matthew chapter 7. Lodge this one in your brain, and we'll be getting to it in a little bit. Jesus said, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, the dust particle in your neighbor's eye, but don't notice the log, the tree trunk in your own eye. All right. I want to pray uh, for this, and I'd like to have some people around the congregation who will be intercessors for me this morning. Uh, can I get some intercessors who will just sprinkle in their listening? I need a couple more with uh, prayer. Thank you. Our Heavenly Dad, we want to be about you more than we're about anything else. And so... Lord, our prayer this morning, as it has been these last three weeks, is that you show us your kingdom, your unique kingdom, your beautiful kingdom, your radical kingdom, your subversive kingdom, your not uncommonsensical kingdom. God, let your kingdom be done in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives as it is in heaven, and depollute our minds of everything that's not of you so that we may see the unique diamond that is the kingdom of God, and that we might be totally, unequivocally, uncompromisingly sold out and dedicated to that unique kingdom. Let it be done. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I want to start. I've always had a a pledge to be very honest uh, with all of you, and I'm going to just give an honest confession here. Um, I, I have spent a good part of my adult life just studying, examining uh, objections to Christianity. I love doing that. It's just kind of a weird facet of my personality. I have trouble uh, passing up a book in the bookstore if it's written against Christianity. I just want to know what they're thinking. And, I, and, uh, and that, that feels called apologetics, where you give defenses for the faith and answer objections to the faith. And um, I have to my own satisfaction, at least there's always ongoing lingering questions, but to my own satisfaction, I I, I think I've dealt with all of them, and uh, they don't bother me at all, except for one. I am asked sometimes, what is, in your studies, the greatest objection that you've ever found to the truthfulness of Christianity? And my answer is, if I'm honest, the church. And some of you are thinking the exact same thing. I don't mean everything about the church, but some aspects of the church. Historically, when I look at some of the things the church has done, it has justified atheism. And still today, so much of the church, at least a great percentage of the church, 
It's just ugly. It's, it's sometimes mean-spirited. It's sometimes petty. It's, it, it doesn't look at all like Jesus. And, and uh, the real tragedy of that is that the church was supposed to be the main proof of the truthfulness of Jesus. By your love, even more than your nice arguments and even more than your nice strategies and programs, by your love, by your willingness and ability to ascribe worth to others at cost to yourself, no one else is doing that. When you do it, people will see the reality of me. That's what Jesus teaches us. And yet the main, what was supposed to be in God's design, the main proof of Christianity has become the main objection. The way that I, with intellectual integrity, sort through that issue is by making the distinction that we've been making the last four weeks, and that's the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. By definition, the kingdom of God is what looks like Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Where you have people who are laying down their lives for their enemies, you've got the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of God. I love the beauty of the kingdom of God. I love the beauty of the gospel story, and I'm absolutely convinced it's true. I think every historical piece of evidence points in that direction, and my own heart points in that direction. Uh, it's too beautiful for a human being to make up God becoming a man, entering into our sin to redeem us. But so much of the ugliness of the church just counts against that. But the way I go forward in this whole thing is by making this distinction. What I'm about, what I believe is true, what I'm willing to defend is the kingdom of God. But see, everything that doesn't look like Jesus is part of the kingdom of this world. I don't care what it calls itself. I don't care how religious it is. It's not what I'm going to defend. I'm going to defend the kingdom of God and nothing but the kingdom of God. That's why I, I uh, f frequently just, uh, when people bring up the objections of church history or whatever, it's like, I, I, that's, that's religious stuff. I'm not going to try to defend that. I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God that's available to you today. Amen. I have in the last three weeks confronted three people who said something like this, and I understand where they're coming from. I, 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 believe, I, I think I believe it's true, and I, I want to become a Christian. It's just that I don't like any of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, we've got to hear that. We've been talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of the cross versus the kingdom of the sword, the kingdom of power under versus the kingdom of power over the kingdom of outrageous love versus the kingdom of the law. Two very, very different kingdoms. Both have a role to play, but they're very distinct kingdoms, and everything hangs upon our keeping these kingdoms distinct. Uh, when the two kingdoms are not kept distinct, and I believe it's a strategy of the devil to try to fuse them together, to not have them distinct, it, it, it undermines uh, both of them, but especially the kingdom of God. It causes disaster for the kingdom of God. It pollutes people's perception of the kingdom of God. And I've been outlining uh, five disastrous things that happen when we don't keep these two kingdoms distinct. By way of review, the first was that it compromises our witness for Jesus Christ because the only witness we've got is our, our willingness and ability to lay down our life for others, to, to live self-sacrificially towards others. But when the kingdom of God is too closely confused with the kingdom of this world, then what a nation does or what an organization does, people think that that's what the kingdom of God does and they don't want anything to do with it. Secondly, we lose our missionary focus. We think if we call this a Christian nation, then we think that missions is what happens when we go over there. We send out missionaries. Uh, we, we, we go on the missionary field because we're pretty much already Christian. But I submit to you, as I argued last week, that uh, America is as much a mission field as any country on the planet. 
And uh, we need to see past this social religion, the veneer, the civic religion, and, and see that uh, our culture, as much as any culture, is devoid of uh, the real presence of the kingdom of God, and our job is to demonstrate it and to proclaim it. Third, we end up trusting power over rather than power under. When you start using the sword, it's hard to put it down. And so we come to believe that, that the only commonsensical way to try to change people is through outside pressure, outside laws, uh, through guilt and shame. And we do it on the outside and we do it on the inside. That's why so many churches are full of, of guilt and shame and social pressure kind of stuff, trying to change people from the outside in, whereas the kingdom of God always changes people from the inside out. Through coming under people and demonstrating love as they are, they're changed from the inside out. The fourth thing that happens that we talked about last week is that when the two kingdoms are too closely confused, we allow the kingdom of the world to set the agenda for the kingdom of God. They define the rules of the game. They define the terms of the debate. Uh, they, they define the proposed solutions. And then the church weighs in on one side or the other and it splits. Whereas what Jesus always did throughout the Gospels, what Jesus always did, when people try to put out these different alternatives, as he said, I'm not going to bite the bait on that. Here's a third, distinctly kingdom of God way of approaching an issue. And now I want to talk about the fifth disastrous consequence. And if the first four have stretched some people, the fifth is really going to stretch some people. And I, I would like to say this right at the very beginning, as in all of this. Uh, hear what I'm saying and assess it according to the Word of God. This is, uh, the Word of God is our constitution. It's what we live by. And, and I, I, I ask you not to try to file me in one category, one political category or the other. I don't care where you align yourself politically. It's not about that. I'm trying to give here a distinct kingdom of God vision of things. So just listen and say, well, does that, does that square with the word of God? The fifth disastrous consequence that happens when we too closely fuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world is that the church sees itself as the protector, the guardian, the fixer of social morality. We believe that we're the moral standard bearers since we have a superior wisdom on moral issues, since we know what is best for people. It's our job to sort of toe the line, to guard the culture, to advance the cause of morality, to fix people with their morality, to do as much as we can to keep people from being immoral. Because we know what's best for them, even better than they know. And see, uh, some here in the congregation are saying, well, yeah, that's, of course that's what the church is supposed to do. Listen to what I'm going to say now. The, the church is a giant Jesus, right? Uh, the body of Christ is to do what the first body of Christ did, the incarnate body of Christ did. Uh, nothing more, nothing less. We're simply to be Jesus Christ to the world, light to the world. So ask yourself this question, when did Jesus ever position himself to be the protector, the guardian, and the fixer of social morality? Think about that. When did he ever do that? Now Jesus was the one sinless person on the planet. So he's the one person who didn't have a log in his eye. So he was the one person who could have justifiably set himself up as a fixer of people. But Jesus never did that. And it wasn't that there was a lack of things to shoot at. That culture back then was far more debaucherous than our culture. You had governors holding orgies, uh, using their own wives to have social orgies to raise money to build buildings. Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time, in fact, no time, trying to protect, advance, fix, promote 
the cause of social morality. Here's what you find Jesus doing. You see a need, you meet the need, you proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus consistently does throughout the gospel. You see a need, come under the person and do what you can to meet that need, and then announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. Straightforward, simple, to the point, bullseye, that's the kingdom of God. You come upon a person who's sick, Jesus heals them. Come upon a person who's in bondage, Jesus delivers them. Come upon people who are hungry, give them food. Come upon a guy who ran out of wine at a wedding, you give him wine. Uh, you see a need, you come under the person and you meet the need. You demonstrate God's outrageous love for them by what you do in response to their need. Never do you find Jesus doing a background check on people. Think about it. Never does he investigate, probe, and try to fix uh, the person's life. Now, in a way, he does fix people, but he does it by loving them as being broken, and he doesn't try to directly affect that brokenness. He just comes under them. The closest you get to Jesus doing a moral commentary on somebody is the woman caught in the act of adultery, where he says, go and sin no more. But now, really, you've got to read the entire context in John chapter 9. Uh, the, the woman was brought in by a bunch of men, and we wonder where the man, it takes two to do that, doesn't it? Uh, where's the man who was caught in adultery? He, he got off the hook. The woman's brought to Jesus. These guys are going to stone her because that's what the law says to do. And so Jesus, doing the wisdom of the kingdom of God, basically asks, uh, okay, fine, yes, she deserves to be stoned. I agree with you completely. Let the one who in, who's innocent, the one who doesn't deserve to be stoned, you cast the first stone. And they all drop their stones and walk away. The whole point of the story is that no one, no one who is a sinner, and guess what? We're all included in that category, is in a position to stone this woman, to stand over this woman. Some might think, well, what about the, 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 uh, the woman at, at the well of Samaria? Jesus pointed out that she was, had, had five different husbands and, and uh, was now living with a guy who wasn't her husband. Again, read the whole story in John chapter 4. It's, first of all, amazing that Jesus, a Jewish a man, is talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. That's breaking a lot of social taboos. But now notice, when Jesus brings, he does bring this up. He says, you're right, you, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. He doesn't go, shame on you, stop that. He doesn't try to fix her. He doesn't try to tweak it at all. What he does, he's trying to offer her the water of life himself. And, and that's the whole point of the story. And the only reason he brings up what he knows about her is to say this. I know everything about you, and the offer is still on the table. If you're thirsty, I got something for you to drink. He, he, he's not the promoter, advancer, and fixer of, of people. He's the lover of people. He just comes under people. And he's the one who does know what is best for them. And he's the one who's in a position to throw the stone. But that's the very thing that Jesus does not do. His disciples do the same thing. He, he, Jesus commissions them to carry out his own ministry. They see a need. They meet a need. They announce the kingdom of God is at hand. You get their charter in Luke chapter 10. They're, they're marching orders. Jesus tells them, go into a town. Number one, bless the house. Bless the houses there. Use your distinct kingdom of God authority to pray blessing on the house. Number two, if they invite you in, fellowship with them. Develop friendships. Uh, uh, get intimate with them. Notice, no background checks yet. No moral interrogation. Whatever they are, whatever their situation in life, just be friends to them. Third, if there's someone sick, pray for the sick. If there's someone in bondage, use your kingdom authority to get them out of bondage. Still no background check. Number four, now announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now explain the outrageousness of your love and your service to these people by, by, by saying that, you know what, the kingdom of God is at hand and it transformed my life and this is why I consider it an honor to love you and to fellowship with you. There's never a background check in that. 
And see, when people hear the kingdom of God, yes, for sure, they're changed, but we don't, by our power over, change them in a kingdom of God kind of a way. And I submit to you that the job of the church is to do exactly what Jesus did and exactly what the early church did, nothing more, nothing less. This is the body of Christ. Just imitate Jesus. See a need, meet a need, announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. The good news, proclaim that God's come into this world. Proclaim his outrageous universal love. Proclaim the freedom that that is there to set the captives free. Proclaim the acceptance, the year of jubilee. And let that explain the behavior that you've just invested in in coming under these people. Now someone might say, what about John the Baptist? And that really gets us to the heart of this issue. What about John the Baptist? He pointed out the sins of other people. He pointed out the sins of Herod. He got his head cut off for that. And isn't that what the church is supposed to be doing? One of the things I've noticed is that more and more I'm hearing John the Baptist used as the paradigm for what the church is to be in society and even the paradigm for how we're supposed to evangelize. A little teaching here, and this is very important. Put on your thinking caps. Attend to this. Israel was supposed to be a theocracy. Theocracy, it it, it means God ruled. It was supposed to have God as its king. Now, it never really worked out that way, but that was the goal. They eventually had a king, but it was still something of a theocracy. And in this theocracy, we need to understand this. This was part of God's covenant with Israel. It was a one-time thing. With Israel, God said, you know, that that, uh, there'll be a king who was to carry out God's will. And then there were prophets that God raised up, and their role, their recognized role in the culture and their recognized role to the king was to be watchmen. In fact, they're called watchmen in in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. They would watch over the flock, the nation of Israel, and they would hold the king accountable, and they would hold the people accountable. That was understood. That was part of the culture. It was a a, a God-ordained sort of function. This is, but the prophets didn't watch out for the Gentiles. Uh, They didn't go after the Gentiles. They didn't hold the Gentiles accountable. It was just to the people that are in covenant relationship with God. And God's purpose was to raise up a nation that uh, that would have a a distinct knowledge of God so that, that they could reach the entire world. And that never really succeeded. But that was the program. This is why John, note this, he goes after Herod. Because Herod was a Jew, and Herod was the ruler of the Jew, the Jews, the king of the Jews, uh, politically. And so it was part of the covenantal relationship for John to do that, because John was a prophet. But John never went after Pilate, never went after Caesar Augustus, even though they were worse than Herod. Why? Well, because there was no basis for that. Uh, John, the prophet, was about uh, the, the Jews. It's also why, if you look at it, um, why, why uh, you find Jesus and Paul quoting the law to Gentile or to, to the Jews because that's, that's the covenant. That's their constitution. But they never quote the law to Gentiles. Why would they? The Gentiles don't believe in the law. I, I hear so much of, 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 of people, uh, you hear this a lot. Here's the way to do evangelism. Do it like John the Baptist. You go to people and you point out the Ten Commandments and you show them which of the Ten Commandments that they've broken. And then you show them that, uh, that each one of those breaks uh, uh, warrants hell. And now you bring them on their knees and to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I don't doubt the sincerity of people doing that. And I don't doubt that sometimes it actually works. But I submit to you, it's not the biblical way to witness to Gentiles at least. Look at the way Paul does it. When he's in the synagogue, he preaches the law. Yes, because they believe in the law. He's holding them accountable to what they've already agreed to. But when he's talking to Gentiles, he never does that. 
Look at Acts 17. He, comes up, he goes to these Gentile philosophers, and they've got 19 different, 20 different statues to, to uh, different gods. Now, if they were Jews, Paul would, with justification, say, what's wrong with you people? This is idolatry. This is heathenism. This is paganism. You know better than this. But see, they don't believe the law, so it doesn't do much good to appeal to the law. What Paul does is he says, I see that you're very religious. Read it in Acts 17. I see you're very religious. He compliments them. And then he says, you have one statue over here to the unknown God. Let me talk to you about that God. And then he doesn't quote the Bible because they don't believe in the Bible. What he does is he quotes their own philosophers because they believe in their own philosophers. He quotes Seneca and he quotes uh, um, Epicurus as a way of, of leading them into a dialogue about the resurrection. That's how you do evangelism. Uh, you, know, you, you, you affirm people, and then you look for a door, an opening. You fellowship with them, and, 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 and look for an opening in their life, in their worldview, on their terms. That gives you a way to speak about the gospel. I, I, I sometimes see, and I'm sure you see, different Christian spokespeople on Larry King and, and doing other things, and they start quoting the Bible. The Bible, my, my Bible says this. As though everyone's supposed to agree with that. Uh, that's bad communication skills. It's like if, if, if a Muslim came up to you and, and, and you're, you're having a glass of wine and the Muslim says, you know, uh, hey, the Quran says you should never drink wine because that's what the Quran says. How would you respond to that? You'd go, so? Uh, thanks for the information. Um, one more reason not to believe the Quran. <laughs> I mean, I... But see, that's what it's like when we stand up and quote the Bible to people. It makes sense to people who believe in the Bible already. That's why we do it in church. But it doesn't translate out there where people, you know, you're talking about breaking the Ten Commandments. They don't believe in the Ten Commandments. You're talking about going to hell. and They don't believe in hell. It's interesting in the book of Acts. If you look at the early sermons, which I think should be paradise for how we're supposed to preach to the culture at large, you don't find one reference to hell. Now, there's a place to talk about that, but, but if you're talking to people who don't believe in hell, uh, you know, warning them about that just makes you look like you're trying to manipulate them with some kind of a fear button. In any case, here's what's happened. A lot of people think that America is a theocracy. And so they loop back into the Old Testament paradigm. And that's where we see the, 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 the president's supposed to carry out the will of God. And uh, the church, we just sort of decide that we're going to be the prophets and we'll keep the president and the government accountable and we'll keep the people accountable because we know what is best for them and so we act like John the Baptist. And that's why, because of this theocracy mindset that America's the one nation under God and that means that God is ruling us and we're sort of his chosen people, because of that, when we go to war, there's often religious rhetoric that accompanies that, those wars. And you just got to know that whenever you have religious rhetoric around wars, you're, you're in dangerous territory. Some people who conquered America, some of the Europeans who conquered America used religious rhetoric to do it. They, they, they went to the Old Testament paradigms about God leading Israel. They called it manifest destiny and they used it to slaughter millions of Americans and, and, and enslave millions of, of, of Africans. And I, that was their manifest, it's just manifest. This is our, our destiny. And so the church sets itself up as in this theocracy as we are the protectors, we are the fixers, we are the promoters of what's morally right. I want to give you five quick reasons why this thinking is, is misguided. Number one, God never said America was a theocracy, so why believe America is a theocracy? In fact, America wasn't founded as a theocracy. In fact, America was founded by people trying to escape theocracies. That's what they had over in England and, and Switzerland and whatnot. 
and they were running away from it because never in history have we had a Christian theocracy, a supposed Christian theocracy, where it hasn't been bloody and barbaric. Jesus, it's amazing. When you have the true kingdom of God, prostitutes and tax collectors want to hang around with it. But when you have a kingdom of God associated with the kingdom of the world, a sort of theocracy, even the Christians run away from it. <laughs> I find that interesting. God never said it was a theocracy, so we have no reason to believe it was a theocracy. And this is why in our Constitution, they wisely put in a separation of church and state. Secondly, Israel's theocracy was tempor temporary and conditional. It wasn't meant for all time. It was meant to be a stepping stone to reaching the whole world. God's always been trying to reach the whole world. It's really interesting, hear me on this. Everybody, all the Jews at the time, wanted to reinstate this theocracy. We need to get, take Israel back for God. And we're tired of being under Roman rule. We want God to be our ruler, and, and we want that theocracy to be here. And they're always trying to pull Jesus into that political agenda, and Jesus consistently didn't bite the bait. His kingdom was not about that. Now, if Jesus didn't try to take Israel back for God, and Israel was the one true theocracy that's been in history, if Jesus didn't try to take Israel back for God, what are we thinking when we're trying to take America back for God as though it was supposed to be or was once upon a time in the good old days uh, a, a, a theocracy? What we need to understand is that since the cross, God's not working with any particular nation. His, his, his mode of operation isn't to work with a certain blessed nation to reach the world, to make a nation the light of the world and, and the hope of the world. What God's doing today is this. His kingdom is identical with Jesus Christ. And wherever you have people who are looking like, smelling like, talking like, acting like Jesus Christ, there you have the kingdom of God. And God wants to reach the world, grow the mustard seed, take over the world, take the world back for him. But the way he's doing it is through people replicating Jesus Christ. It's that kingdom that doesn't, isn't based on a nationality. It's not based on a race. It's not based on a gender. It's not based on a social strata. It's based on anybody who will simply say, I have faith in you. I submit to you. I'll be a disciple of you. I'll follow you. I'll imitate you. That's how God is changing the world this day. America, I'm sorry to tell you, but America is not the hope of the world, and America is not the light of the world, and America is not the good news, and, and the political freedom that we have and that we promote, and thank God for that. Thank God for every ounce of that, but that's not salvation. That's not, that, that's not the gospel's good news. The good news is Jesus Christ. The light of the world is Jesus Christ. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. The transformation of the world is Jesus Christ. The third thing is that there is a role for being a watchman in, in the church, but the role of a Christian watchman is relational and covenantal. What I mean by that is this, and you find this throughout the epistles, is that we are called to be in intimate relationships with one another, like they were in the early church. They had house churches and they fellowshiped together. And we're called to invite others in on our life to say, here's a struggling area, will you help me walk in that? And now we're playing the role of a watchman. There is a role for that. And there's a role for pastors to be watchmen over the flock and, and to make sure that we're, we're going in the right direction. There's a role for that. But we no more play the watchman role to those on the outside than the prophets of Israel play the role of watchmen to the Gentiles. It's just... That's, you leave that up to God. In fact, the New Testament expressly forbids us to set ourselves up as the uh, watchmen, the moral guardians of the world on the outside. When Paul says, rhetorically, what have I to do with those on the outside? Uh, he, he's saying that's not, that's not our jurisdiction. We work with those who are inside the church. Even more to the point, Jesus said, and we read it earlier, why are you looking for a dust particle in another person's eye when you've got a two-by-four? In your own eye. Now hear this. If the church, if we, if every Christian 
Every disciple of Jesus did this. The reputation of the church would not be that we're the morally superior, we think we're the morally superior people who are going to instruct others on how to live. Rather, the reputation of the church would be these are the most self-effacing, humble people on the planet. Our proclamation would be, yeah, you've got sin. Ours is greater. It's part of spiritual growth. The farther you grow, you get to be like Paul, where Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the chiefest of sinners. And it's a sign of spiritual maturity that you say, yeah, you've got a dust particle, but I've got two by fours. And that ought to be the proclamation of the church. And if the church was doing that, self-effacing, just saying, you know what, we're not going to throw stones here because we ourselves are the chief of sinners. That's a way of coming under people and nothing could more beautifully spread the genuine kingdom of God than that. Number four, the church just doesn't make a very good watchman. The church is a poor watchman. Now again, we live in a version of the kingdom of the world where your opinion gets asked about how the culture should run and give that. A, a, wonderful. But as the corporate body of Christ, as the giant Jesus, our role is not to be the protector and fixer of society. And we're very bad at it when we try to do that and we try to do it a lot. When we set ourselves up as those who know what is best for other people and, uh, and uh, weigh in on certain issues as a corporate body, everybody sees the hypocrisy and pettiness of it except the church itself. We're self-selective and self-serving in the sins that we decide that we're going to go after. Everyone sees our tree trunks except us, and we're the ones who are supposed to see it. Uh, let me illustrate what I mean. Because I, I find this to be just one of the most damaging things uh, for, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. A friend of mine's in Cambodia. He, he spends uh, his, whole his whole ministry, his, his whole life is spent rescuing kids out of uh, sexual, uh, out of prostitution, children out of prostitution, kids under the age of 12. Uh, he works with several organizations to do this. He spends his life uh, gazing into the ugliest part of humanity. And it's mostly Westerners, Americans and uh, British people who... Uh, who, who, who exploit these young children. He sees the massive poverty that, that, that uh, leads these people to do this desperate thing of selling their children into prostitution. They have no assets, nothing's available to them except the body of their little child, and some American wants it, so they sell it. That's what he looks at. Now, he came back on furlough. I spoke with him in, uh, in Connecticut several months ago, and, and he was bottoming out. He was asking the question, is Christianity even real? And here's why he was asking it. He came back on a Friday. That Friday night, Dateline showed an expose of what's going on in Cambodia and Thailand with this uh, t uh, child prostitution thing. And it was a lurid, graphic, accurate depiction. 30,000 Vietnamese girls alone in Cambodia are sold into prostitution. And to a large degree, the governments look the other way. They just don't care. There wasn't an outrage, a, a, a cry on the part of the church. There wasn't even a yawn. 30 million people watched it, but there wasn't, like, uh, call your senator about this. Three days later, at the Super Bowl, Janet Jackson exposed her breasts for five seconds on national TV. Now we had an outrage. Now the media was just saturated. Uh, 
how repulsive this is and how we have a right to watch TV and not have to look at that kind of thing. And you know what? I completely agree with that. That is a, that is a disgusting, stupid, juvenile, dumb thing. But weigh that against 30,000 kids being in sexual prostitution. And what is the graver sin? Uh, what is doing the more harm in the world? And, and I'm not saying don't be outraged at Janet Jackson. I'm just wondering. I'm wondering what a lot of people out there are wondering. And I'm on the inside of this thing. What is the criteria by which we decide what, what we're going to be Jesus towards and stand over and fix in the society and what we're not going to stand over and fix? What's the criteria? A lot of people are looking at this saying, what are you thinking? You're going to fix my life? You're going to tell me how to live? And you're not down here in the trench with me. You don't show any concern about, about, about the poverty I'm in or, or the, the struggles that I go through. I was, uh, several months ago, we had this uh, marriage amendment, anti-gay marriage rally at the Capitol. They had six, 7,000 people that were there. Fine. Two weeks later, we had a rally at the Capitol about the cause of homelessness. There's probably 40 or 50 people that showed up, and I'm not sure how many of them were Christian. I thank God that about half of them came from Woodland Hills Church. Uh, what, what, okay, what, what, why is that? Why is that? Well, one thing is that most people didn't know about the homeless uh, rally. Why? Because the Christian media machine, they, they don't pick that stuff up. That just doesn't sell. But you push people's fear button that the culture's going to hell in a handbasket because this is going to happen. And now people will get out there and have a lot of fire about it. And I'm not talking against your rallying at the Capitol for any reason. I'm just wondering, what's the criteria? Why one and not the other? Recently found, a, you know, e this happens at this time of year, you know, the uh, emails and people getting angry because our rights are being denied to pray at commencement exercises. Fine, well, and good. Deal with that. But I have yet to hear a, a, a single white voice be outraged by the fact that there still to this day is not a law in this country giving blacks the right to vote. They're still riding on the good graces of a Civil Rights Act that was ratified in 1982 and it, it, it comes up for a revote in 2007. Why isn't anyone disturbed about that? I'm just wondering, I seriously am wondering where the, where the criteria is. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't think we make good watchmen. I don't think we've earned the rights to tell uh, the world at large uh, what is best for them. I think we've got tree trunks in our own eyes. Fifth, there is a prophetic role we're supposed to play. And it's the one that Jesus played. In everything, we're supposed to look like Jesus. Just look like Jesus. Just look like Jesus. Jesus played a prophetic role. But he did it by a power under, not a power over. He... If you want to take a public stance, as, as, in terms of the body of Christ, how you vote is a different thing. They ask your opinion, give it. But in terms of what the body of Christ as a whole does, we, our charter is Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? He took some public stance. He took some scandalous public stances, uh, stances that outraged people. He came under those who were being squashed by the power over game consistently. And don't file me under liberal in saying this. Check it out in Scripture. Jesus consistently went to those people. He loves everybody, but he, but he spent his time ministering to the people, taking a stance, entering into solidarity with those who are being downtrodden and squished by the power over game of the world. He spent his time identifying with, counting himself among the lepers and the outcasts and the prostitutes and the sinners and the poor and the drunkards. That's why he got the reputation uh, that he got. He, he entered into solidarity with them. He came under them and he shared their pain. He identified with him. In fact, this was central to what Jesus did because it's central to what it is to be to play the prophet's role. You want to play the prophet's role? Here's the essence of it. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. 
the Lord says to Michael, what do I require of you? What do I require of any, anyone? But to love justice, to, to, to love kindness, to seek mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Jesus incarnated that. In fact, he confronted the Pharisees primarily because they weren't doing that. In the, in the culture of Israel, their job was to do that, and they weren't doing that. They had all the moral stuff. Uh, they had all the sexual mores. They were the professional protectors and fixers of people. They had all that down. And Jesus is enraged at them because he says, oh yeah, you, you, you pay attention to all these little tiny things and make sure that people toe the line and you condemn them for it. You put on them a yoke that you yourself can't even keep. But what about the weightier matters of the law? The thing that the law is really all about. Matthew 23, 23. Mercy, justice, and faith. They weren't doing that. They weren't, instead of, enter, instead of uh, entering into solidarity with the prostitutes and showing love and mercy and faith towards them, they were just doing power over. You shouldn't be that way. We've got to fix you. And Jesus confronts them for that reason. The church, the church, in fact, his whole ministry is defined by this. What does he do on the cross? He enters into solidarity with sinners, us. People who are being squished by the power over game, only in this case it's the principalities and powers. We were being destroyed by the enemy. Jesus he plays the prophet role by, by entering into solidarity with us. He's not ashamed to be called our father. He's not ashamed to be called our brother. In fact, the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He shared our guilt on the cross of Calvary. And the church, if we're going to be the kingdom of God, we've got to look like Jesus, and this is what Jesus did. We ought to have a heart and an eye for those who are being squished, enter into solidarity with those who are being squished by the power over game. Uh, side with them. Get into the trenches of the homeless. Get in the trenches of those who are hungry. Get in the trenches of those who are at the margins. Jesus broke every social taboo you can think of. He broke social taboos like, like he was eating candy. He embraced lepers and, and hung out with the prostitutes and the drunks. And that's exactly what the church should be doing. Getting in the trenches there, coming down under, siding with those, feeling their pain, walking in solidarity solidarity with those who are uh, suffering at the hands of injustice, exercising a power under, not a power over. And the beautiful thing about this is that no one can charge you with hypocrisy for doing that. You could be tell, screaming, I got tree trunks, I got tree trunks, and now you're going to go and enter into solidarity with the poor or people who are oppressed or people who are hungry, and no one can say, you hypocrite. You hypocrite, how dare you care about the poor like that? How dare you love prostitutes that way? How dare you embrace gay people with that kind of affection? How dare you be so, so concerned about uh, ra racial oppression? No one can accuse you of hypocrisy. And that's what the church, this chiefest of sinners organization, ought to in fact be doing. What you will do is incur the wrath of religious people. Because you're not towing the line. You're not standing up for what is right. You're not cracking down. You're not fixing the society. You're not protecting society. You're hanging out with them. Uh, you're befriending them. And if that, if, if that charge comes, you say praise God because that's exactly what Jesus was charged with. That's a sign that you're doing the right thing. Not towing the line. One more thing. I, 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 you guys, I feel this... So, I, I, I am... I, I am just beside myself on this thing. Look at, I know people are going to say, well, wait a minute, you don't, haven't you heard the sky is falling? Ah, uh, why? If we don't take a stand now as a corporate body, if we don't stand up for what is right, and we will tell you what is right, what is just, uh, you know, then we, and we'll tell you what is just. If we don't take a stand on that, well, then they're going to take away our rights. They're going to, uh, you know, pretty soon they're going to be taking away our Bibles, and, 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 and uh, they're going to be telling us what we have to teach in our Christian schools and what we have to preach, and, and, and then eventually they'll be imprisoning us. 
I don't know what to think about all that. I have heard that kind of talk uh, before a lot of times. Whenever uh, the machinery wants to get people doing stuff, you just press fear buttons. But let's say it's all true. Let's say every bit of that is true. My question is this. So what? So what? No, no, you're not being commonsensical. Use your brain. This doesn't make any sense. Of course we're supposed to stand up for our rights. As participants in the kingdom of the world, do the common sense thing. But as participants in the kingdom of God, as a corporate whole, when do you, where is the verse in the Bible that says, make sure that what you do is commonsensical? I got a word for you. The kingdom of God's never been commonsensical. It's radical and beautiful because it doesn't make any common sense to the natural mind. Here's the criteria. What did Jesus do? Always. What did Jesus do? That's what we want to do. And I I don't find him a lot fighting for his rights. In fact, it seems to me that the way he intentionally spread the kingdom of God was by refusing to fight for his rights. He could have fought for his rights. He just said, no, go ahead and crucify me. And it might be that a persecution in the church in America would be the best thing that ever happened to us. You think about it. It would blow sky high. Some of the Pollyanna Christianity we got going on. It would blow apart this... Uh, Religion as a, you know, self-secure, make it feel comfortable, improve my life a little bit stuff. It blow apart the idea that Christianity is a civic religion that has primarily to do with praying before uh, football games. It blow apart, wouldn't it, if we started getting persecuted, the, the myth that this is a Christian nation. It blow apart this idea that 80% of the people in this country are, are, are Christians because they'd hightail it real, real quick. It blow apart idolatrous patriotism. It blow apart this idea that when the Bible says that all the nations of the world are under the power of Satan, somehow America is excluded from that. Somehow it doesn't apply to America. It blow apart a lot of the civic social religion. It make us get serious about our faith, and that's a good thing. It might be that a persecution is exactly what the doctor ordered in terms of turning this thing around and bringing genuine Christianity into the culture. Never has the church been persecuted where it didn't grow. Never has the church conquered the culture where it didn't die. So as a normal human being, it's like, I don't want my rights trampled on, my religious rights. I don't want to look at Janet Jackson's breast when I'm watching the football game. But as a kingdom of God person, there's a different person. Furthering the kingdom of God is the main thing, and if we get thrown into prison to do it, the Bible says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. So much of the religion of America is about getting outraged at sex and fighting for our rights. Those are the two buttons you push if you want to get Christians to act. And those are two things I never see Jesus doing, which tells me that's not a kingdom of God activity. What Jesus did do was he came under people, met needs, came under those especially who are being squashed by the power over system. And that is what the kingdom of God is all about. In the early church, they considered it an honor to be, to be killed for their faith. We have writings. They consider it a joy. I get to imitate Jesus by being fed to lions. And today we got a religion that's largely centered on fighting for our rights. Something has changed. Something has changed. And I've never seen it clearer than I do this second. I just want us to think about that. Think about that. I know it's a radically different paradigm. But weigh it against Scripture. It's the scriptural paradigm. Close your eyes to pray, and I'm just going to say this. If you're here this morning and you want to sign, sign your life away to follow Jesus Christ and become a participant in this 
uh, radical, non-commonsensical kingdom. To my right and your left, up here at the table, there is uh, a person who would love to explain to you what that, what, what's involved in that. I encourage you to do that. Uh, the altar team will be up here. If you have any need, any prayer that you want to have taken care of, uh, spend some time in prayer here. Otherwise, I just want to leave us with this prayer. Father, make us think. Help us to think outside the box of how we've been told and programmed to think by the culture. Free our minds to see the radical, distinct, beautiful, unique, uncommonsensical kingdom of God. And help us to be sold out to that and that alone. As we leave this place, I pray, Lord God, that you would just grab our minds and hearts and help us to replicate Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. Just do Jesus, corporately and individually. Help us to do everything Jesus did. Empower us to do everything Jesus did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go out and be missionaries. Happy Mother's Day. God bless you.